Morning, Christchurch. There any fans of the Hunger Games in here? Raise your hand. It's okay. It's okay in church to raise your hand and say you like the Hunger Games. But it's um, it's one of those series of books I picked up, you know, a decade or so ago, and um, I just flew through them. I couldn't put them down. As soon as I finished, wanted to pick up the next and go through the whole series. And then I, of course, saw the movies and was fascinated at many levels. But one of them was um, here was this nation under totalitarian rule. And um, this nation was called Panem. And that word Panem, it comes from the Latin phrase Panem et Circenses, bread and circuses. And what it, the reason this was given, the, the, the name Panem was given to the nation is that that communicated the way that the leaders ruled. Was that basically, if I can, the leaders think, if I can keep the population, if I can keep their bellies full, and I can keep them entertained, then I can do whatever I want because they will be distracted from what's really going on because they're so entertained and their bellies are full. And so that leads to the ways that, what a, quite a morbid way in which the population is entertained and the name, where the name Hunger Games and these games come from. It's a spectacle that gets everybody watching. And um, if you've read the book or seen the scenes of the Capitol. The Capitol is just an absolutely decadent place um, where anything goes and um, wildly full of entertainments. It's Las Vegas on steroids. And so this is, this, is how, um, this is how the leader rules in that story. Appealing to the basest desires, giving food and a spectacle, feed them, amuse them, this is the most expedient way to gain and keep power. And so that's the approach that is taken there. Now, we just heard a reading from the gospel, from the gospel of Matthew chapter 4. Last week was baptism, this week is temptation. And immediately following Jesus' inauguration ceremony, or his consecration, which was his baptism, he's then led into the wilderness and his temptation. And this is the scene that we just read about. He's led by the Holy Spirit. He fasts for 40 days, and the accuser tempts him and tests him and tests his identity. And part of the way he's going to test him is what kind of ruler are you going to be? And he's going to appeal to things like food and spectacle as a way that Jesus might be able to lay hold of the kingdom and rule He's trying to define the tempter, the accuser, the devil, is trying to, to find for Jesus what his kingdom will look like and the way that he will reign. And he's appealing to the fact that Jesus is called to be the Messiah, he is the Messiah, and he is entering into this kingship that has just been inaugurated at the baptism. And so he plays to that in his temptations of Jesus. So I, I have been around this text for a number of times over my life. You might have too if you've been a Christian and, and read your Bible very much, this temptation story. And often I've approached it, perhaps you too, from the angle of what, what does this tell me about how I fight my temptations? I've got temptations. Let's go to this passage and figure out how I can fight my temptations by looking at Jesus. And that's a valid 
approach to the text. And actually, we're going to end there. We're going to come back to that full circle. But today, I want to get to a, a little bit more inside the experience of Jesus himself. What's going on in Jesus? What's happening in this dynamic? What's the context of that? And then we'll circle back around to some ways that we can look at our own lives through the lens of Matthew 4. So let's remember for a moment Matthew's audience as he writes this account of Jesus. He's highlighting for them all the ways that Jesus is a continuation of the story of Israel, that Jesus is the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. Matthew, writing to this Jewish audience, wants to make sure that they understand this continuity. Now, the big defining story of Israel, the major story in the history of Israel, that everything is, it's, it's either telling that story or it's looking back to that story and recounting who God is because he demonstrated himself in that story is the story of the Exodus. Matthew tells the story of Jesus kind of in an overlay of that Exodus to say the story of Jesus and his people is very similar. Look, you'll see the same patterns and the same God at work as you saw in the story of Exodus. Have you ever used... Tracing paper, you know that paper that's super thin, put it over a drawing or a piece of art or anything, and then you just kind of like trace the lines. I think of this story kind of like that, the way Matthew tells the story of Jesus like that. You can trace the lines onto a fresh piece of paper. You can use whatever ink you want, charcoal you want, fresh paper, fresh color, fresh mediums that you're doing. That's how Matthew is telling the Jesus story. He's laying down some tracing paper over the story of Israel's deliverance, laying down some tracing paper over the exodus, and then he's tracing the life of Jesus over that story. Listen to it this way. Israel was in Egypt in bondage as slaves because of the oppression of Pharaoh. Jesus was a baby in Egypt in flight from the oppression of Herod. Israel was delivered through the waters and the parting of the sea. Jesus, in whom divinity was united to humanity. Jesus went through the waters of baptism. Comes out of Egypt, where he was as a baby. Goes through the waters of baptism. After Israel was delivered through the waters, he was tested in the wilderness for 40 years. After Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, he's tested in the wilderness for 40 days. Then next we have Israel being given the law in the wilderness. They're given the law at Mount Sinai. Moses receives the Ten Commandments, the covenant, and that is established there. What's going to happen right after this temptation passage in Matthew 4? The Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is going to give a new law and a new covenant and a new teaching on a new mountain. Matthew is tracing the life of Jesus over the life of Israel and the Exodus, and he's saying... There is a new exodus that is available, a new covenant, a new deliverance available. And he's communicating that to his audience, to the Jewish audience. At Jesus' baptism, he was set apart for his vocation. It was a consecration service, establishing his kingship, a coronation, an inauguration, 
of this king and kingdom. And he would go about, after that, he would go about his father's work, bringing about his kingdom. You know, when he was 12 years old, there's that scene where Jesus is already, he's in the temple, and his parents are like, where's our 12-year-old son? They're on, you know, on down the road, and they realize he's not there. They come back, and he says, did you not realize I'd be about my father's business? And that right there, that phrase is what this kingdom calling is all about. Jesus wants to be about his father's business. He and the father are one. Whatever he does is the will of the father, and whatever's the will of the father is what he does, and they're fully united in that. So at Jesus' baptism, he's set apart for that vocation. He's named. The father says, this is my son. At that baptism, Jesus and the crowd hear of the father's delight. This is my son that I really love. I'm really delighted. I take great pleasure in him. And in this baptism, the spirit falls down upon him. Now, all that is put to the test. That's where we are today. He goes into the desert, and that calling, all of that gets tested. The baptism answers the what of Jesus' call. The temptation answers the how of his vocation. How is he going to go about living out his vocation? So let's turn to the temptations themselves. There's three temptations. Temptation number one is the temptation to turn stones to bread. It says this, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So as we look at each of these temptations, um, first of all, we see there's this miracle, this spectacle that will happen that he's being tempted to perform, turning these stones to bread. Food is a basic human need. So this speaks to kind of how will you supply for your own and others basic human needs, physical needs, physical desires. This temptation refers to any immediate need, anything that we might consider a need or even an entitlement. You might put food, sex, money, shelter into these kind of like basic human desires, basic human needs. This touches on a kind of self-preservation instinct. And it's logical. So the tempter comes often with great logic to us, just as he does to Jesus. He says, this makes a lot of sense, Jesus. If you do this, the basic human needs of the people will be met and yours. And, of course, he's been fasting for 40 days, and so it touches on a moment of weakness as well. And that's also one of the tactics of the tempter. So why does the devil start here? He starts here because it is important and assumed by all human beings that basic human needs are a right and that we're entitled to them. So if the devil can get us to live with that sense of entitlement, basic rights, independently of God with these fundamental needs, then all the other temptations become a lot easier for him. If we say... I can take even my most basic desires and needs into my own hands independently, and the tempter can win that battle with us, then the subsequent battles are going to be easier for him. If you fail to trust here, 
then there's really even not much need for the other temptations that are going to follow, and we'll see in the in this passage. So Jesus is tempted by the offer that this one little action, if he would just do this, turn the stones to bread, he would prove to himself and to other people that his baptismal experience at the Jordan was true. With a miracle here, he could do that. One little independent action, take this into his own hands, and he would move from trust in the Father to what you might just call magic. And one way to think of magic here is power without relationship. He could have this power. He could just, without trusting in his father, he could just wave the wand, so to speak, and make it happen, but there's no relationship involved. Power without relationship. turns the stones to bread with this moment where he steps outside of the interdependence and into independence, not waiting on the Father, not living in a daily kind of dependence and a daily connection with the Father. So this one little independent action, and Jesus would have, if he had done it, he would have stepped out of the kingdom way of doing things. Remember, his baptism showed him the what of his vocation, This is talk getting at the how, and this is one way he could step right out of the how of the kingdom that the Father is inviting him into. With this one step, he could independently eat, so to speak, of the tree of knowledge. There's a little bit of a a callback to what's happening in Genesis here as well. He would follow Adam's footsteps, in other words, and not his father's. It would not be the actions of Love, but of an independent kind of self-preservation. And he'd have to twist the nature of his true humanity and the kingdom of God. But Jesus chooses trust instead. He trusts his Father. And what's the basis of that trust? Jesus trusts him based on who God is, as revealed not only in this moment he's just come from his baptism, but also through the scriptures. He saturated Jesus knew his scriptures. He was raised, again, back to that temple scene at age 12. He was raised and steep, saturated in the scriptures. He knew the heart of God. He knew the character of God. He knew the story. So Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, you know where that phrase, that sentence that he just quotes come from? Comes from Deuteronomy in the context of Israel in the wilderness, where what happens, Israel is called upon to trust God on a daily basis for bread, for manna. If they try to store it up out of distrust, take it into their own hands independently, if they try to store it up to make sure they have enough for the week, it's going to spoil. But God says, you're going to have to count on me every day, moment by moment, for trust. And so Jesus calls back to the character of God on whom he can depend in a day-by-day way. We often get a taste of reality, and it takes us sometimes years to live into it. But we see here Jesus where at his baptism he gets this taste of reality, the Father's love. That's what's really real, and the Spirit's present. And then he's immediately driven into the desert where it's tested. And will he live 
by his Father's love? Will he live into that reality and that daily dependence? Is he going to trust? Tempter says, if you're the Son of God, you can, you can do this magic. As children of God, are we going to resort to magic ourselves? Are we going to respond to that in the same kind of way? There are ways that I think we're tempted to do that. There are ways that we might look to gain power without relationship. We might look to the magic of politics or the magic of culture or the magic of safety and security in the ways that our smarts and our hands can provide that. We can, there's all kinds of like things that are, you might say are magic that we could turn to that aren't daily dependence on relationship with the Father to supply our needs. So God provided Israel's basic needs on a daily basis. Temptation number two, the pinnacle of the temple. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This is a temptation to prove to all Israel that he is the Messiah they've been waiting for. This is another spectacle. You know, there's the the bread and circus. Um, This is part of the circus. Go up to the top of the temple, throw yourself off, land softly, and you'll prove to everybody who you really are that you are, in fact, the Messiah. Now, again, the tempter is not trying to persuade Jesus that he's not the Messiah or to persuade the people that Jesus is not the Messiah. He's getting, trying to get Jesus to act as Messiah in ways that are not in tune with his Father. To approach his Messiahship and his leadership through a different means than the kingdom way. So if he goes up to the top of the temple, he will do now. This is really interesting. There was a legend at the time, at the time of, of, of the the writing of the scriptures and Jesus' life, a legend at that time in the Jewish world that placed the Messiah on the pinnacle of the temple. And this is not part of the Jewish scripture, but it became kind of a legend. A lot of people believed that this is what would happen, that the Messiah would come and he'd go up to the top of the temple. And it was said that that, when when the Messiah does that, it will mark the hour of deliverance. So here's a quote from one of the ancient texts that tells this legend. Our rabbis gave this tradition, it says. In the hour when King Messiah cometh, he standeth upon the roof of the sanctuary and proclaims to Israel, saying, Ye poor and suffering, the time of your redemption draweth nigh. And if you believe, rejoice in my light, which is risen upon you, upon you only. So here's this scene where the devil is tempting him to follow through on this legend because then what will happen? Then everybody's expecting him to do that. This legend is around and circulated. People are saying, when the Messiah does that, we'll know it's the Messiah. And he's saying, go and in one fell swoop, one big spectacle, you can not only go to the top of the temple and and announce that you're that Messiah, you can go a step further, quite literally, a step further. You can step off the temple. And you... You can go even further than what they're expecting. You can really wow them. And everybody will know that you're Messiah. 
And wouldn't that be such an expedient way to get this done? I mean, this would be so efficient and productive if you go about your job this way. I've got, I've got here, I'm a consultant for you, Jesus, on this kingdom organization that you are building, and I've got the way to get it done most productively and efficiently and expediently. If you just do this one thing, everybody will be eating out of the palm of your hand. Just do this. So he's playing into, again, the Messiahship and testing. Will Jesus simply trust and his father step by step? I mean, you can almost hear the devil say in a conversation like this, it is so much easier, Jesus, if you just do that than if you walk around this land for three years just talking to whoever's in front of you, one person at a time. That's just so inefficient. But it's the kingdom way. It's the way that our Messiah reigns, is seeing every single individual. The manner in which he is the Messiah speaks volumes to whether we actually have a Savior or not. Does he see me? Does he see you? Does he, does he walk with us? Does he care about the simple things of our lives and the relationships? Does he sit down at a meal with us? What, how personal is this God? This is all what's being tested here. He's been entered into this, uh, or, or this personal relationship has been demonstrated through his baptism. Personal relationship he has with his father. Is he going to maintain that trust connection and relational connection? And is he going to love as the king in very personal and intimate and slow ways? Or is he going to buy in to the ways that the devil wants him to speed it up and get it done? That's the temptation he f- faces here. And along the way, the devil's saying, food and circus, that'll get it done. So Jesus overcame the first temptation by simple, absolute trust, trust and now he has the opportunity again to act on simple trust. For Jesus, this is not magic. This is not power without relationship. This is naked trust. So Jesus answers him after the second temptation. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Where does that come from? Also from Deuteronomy, also from the context of Israel in its 40-year wilderness. Matthew's retracing the lines of the deliverance of God's people now in the person of Jesus. Temptation number three is one you might call the possession of the kingdom. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain this time and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Here the devil is showing him all the beauty, all the glory of the world. As far as the eye can see, all creation and cosmos and the temptation of possession of it all. So now we have a temptation to of food and basic needs and desires. We have a temptation to power. And here a temptation to possessions. 
All you have to do, all you have to do, the devil says, is sell your soul to me. Sell your soul to the devil. The devil says, Jesus, you can have it all if, if you will just pay homage to me. Bow down and worship me, the devil says. And you can have it all. This is another temptation to draw Jesus away from trusting his father. It's a temptation to actually adopt what we now call a Messiah complex. <laughs> a temptation to take the world into his own hands. To independently do that apart from his father. And instead of being in lockstep dependence upon his father, relationship and cooperation with his father, to take it into his own hands and get it done himself in his own way. A Messiah complex. Jesus replies, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Another quote from Deuteronomy, another quote that comes from the context of the 40 years in the desert. So the devil's tempting Jesus to abandon his true calling, his true vocation. He's trying to distract him from his central vocation which is not only that he is the Messiah, but crucially, crucially, how he is the Messiah. He's the Messiah who trusts daily in his Father. Radical, moment-by-moment trust. Moment-by-moment walking in the ways of his Father in lockstep dependence and naked trust. Jesus shows how to do battle with our own demons as well along the way. We learn this saturation in the scriptures, knowing the character of God, being able to respond to the lies that we hear inside of us with the truth of who God is because we're steeped and saturated in the stories of how God interacts with his people and what kind of God he is. And the more saturated we are in that, the more ready we are when the moment comes, when we hear those lies, to respond to them with the truth of who God is. He shows us how to do battle, how to do battle with our own demons, our own temptations. Two words summarize the way Jesus battles these temptations, trust and truth. Radical, moment by moment, trust and truth, saturated in God's word, which points us to the true character of God. So we can apply that, we can think about that in terms of our own lives in a myriad you know, number of ways of temptations that we face. But let's look for a moment at one specific way that we can apply this. It's the most direct way, actually, that Jesus was being tempted in his vocation to do his vocation in a way that was not what God was asking him to do. Think about your vocation. What is your vocation? And how are you called to go about it? Your vocation might not be what you're paid to do. You might not be paid to do your vocation. It might be at home. It might be at a workplace. It might be a blend of both. But every one of us has something God has called us to do and be in this world. And think about whatever that is. And what are the ways that you go about that that could be independent without trust in God, without maintaining that relational connection? And I thought maybe I'd give you a couple examples from my own story, my own life. Pastoral temptations. The vocation of being a pastor has its own kind of occupational hazards. It has its own kinds of temptations that come with it. One example was there was a a season of my 
ministry life where I was just going hard and fast. And it was a lot of fun because I was seeing a lot of results. I was seeing a lot of fruit. And I went so hard and so fast for so long and enjoyed the fruitfulness of it all that after a while, I hit a kind of burnout. And after I was processing some of the burnout, this was years ago, I was talking with a mentor and describing the situation. And I remember describing the situation uh, a bit as kind of blaming the environment I was in or putting the blame elsewhere that things that were kind of feeding the treadmill and feeding the cycle and feeding the speed and all of that. And this mentor said a, a word to me that was a hard word but so true and it was a word that set free. And he said, I think that actually you might want to take a look at the ways that it was something within you that was driving that burnout. That it was not the context, it was not the community, it was not the leadership, it was, not, it was nothing around you, but, and here's where he was getting, putting his finger right on it. It's like, think about, do you need to be needed? Is there something that you actually get out of that kind of pace and seeing that kind of fruit or getting that kind of affirmation? Is there something in you that is fed by all of that? And when he said that, I realized that could kind of penny drop that there was truth in that and that that was a lot of what was happening for me, that I was called to a vocation of ministry, but I was not doing it in a kingdom way. The how, the what, I had the what right, I didn't have the how right. And I needed to repent of that. And I needed to take responsibility for the things that kind of led me to the place where I was. Here's another example. At, um, a way in which in ministry sometimes there are, there's the getting the what right, but sometimes the how wrong. Here's another example. I was leading a group of people in a particular kind of ministry and community building and mission and um, and I had a very clear vision of where we needed to go. And I was so excited about it. And I was trying to get this group of people to go from here to there. And I, this, was, this was like my goal. We need, we're here. We need to be there. And so I put all my energy into getting from here to there. And along the way, I realized, what? Something's not working here. And this one didn't come so much to the voice of a mentor or another, but just directly from the Holy Spirit speaking to me. But I realized that there was something in me that, had, that was, I was more about getting from here to there than I was about the people themselves. And, and the phrase that felt like the Spirit gave to me was, you can't lead people you don't love. I was approaching my vocation, my work, as simply to get from here to there, but God was calling us from here to there. That was what he was saying. But the how, I was getting all wrong. The how was not a people first mentality. It was an outcome mentality, a results mentality, productivity mentality as opposed to a people first and loving first. So I had to repent. And it was a beautiful thing because I just found that God just began to melt my heart for these people and... Uh, I love, I, I grew a, a deep and great love for that particular group of people. 
What are the ways in which you and your vocations? There's your call to the what, maybe you have that clear, but the how, maybe there's something off in the how. That is a temptation where you're being tempted away from the daily trust, the relational connection with your Father. I want to end with this, one of my most favorite verses in all of the Bible. And I think God probably 15 years ago or something, it's like he just opened my eyes to this has become kind of a, a place that I've gone to back again and again. Verse 11, this is how the story ends. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Now, if you have an idea when you think about this picture of Jesus in the desert and the temptation, you might have this picture of this kind of like weak and wily devil and this strong and victorious Jesus who is just unfazed by the obvious, ridiculous lies of the devil, and he just crushes those lies with his truth and marches on to the next thing. But that is not the picture Scripture gives us. He was absolutely spent by this. He was exhausted. He was at one of his weakest, most empty moments. I want to show you a few images that capture, these are by artists, uh, that are showing some images of Jesus in the wilderness. I look at these and just meditate for a moment that this is our Savior. This is our great high king. This is the Messiah. This is our God. And it's part of his very godness that he enters into humanity in such a real, relatable way with us that he knows this exhaustion. This is a scene called Angel Attending Jesus uh, after the crucifixion, I saw this piece for the first time. Actually, the, the, the piece from a 15th century painter named Anatella in the Prado in Madrid. And I just, you know, I'm walking through the, the gallery and I get to this one and I just stop and I'm transfixed. And actually, it, it brings me to tears in the moment. And on the way out, uh, went to the gift shop to see if they had an image or a card and was able to get a little, uh, some kind of an image of that that I have in my office now. But this is, this is the crucified, dead Jesus. And if you, we can't see it right now, but if I had a detail to show you, you would see the angel's eyes, there's a tear streaming down the angel's cheek. So this moment in the desert, and then there's a moment in Gethsemane, of Jesus' greatest anguish, where again, we're told the angels attended to him. The Father doesn't leave the Son in his humanity, even though he unites divinity and humanity, he does not leave the Son in his humanity without consolation in his worst moments. But his angels are there bringing consolation, bringing comfort. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. So if you're in that place of just feeling beat down, worn out, you have done battle perhaps with temptation and the devil, perhaps other kinds of battles, you can know this, our Savior himself received the ministry of the angels. And now our Savior, in a sense, is the one, like the angels, right at your side, just kind of holding you, 
cradling you, comforting you, bringing you consolation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who did not stay distant and remote, aloof, just demonstrating naked power in the universe. But you're a God who's personal, who loves, who walked among us, suffered with us, and even to the point of being tempted like us. And we thank you that you resisted and showed us the way as well. And ultimately, Lord, on the cross, there where they mocked you as king, they mocked you because you were not, you had not, and were not even in that moment on the cross showing your kingship like they thought a king should. They challenged you to come down from there just like the devil did at the top of the temple, challenge you to jump down. But we say, you are truly true, really real, and our hope is in you. In your name we pray, amen.